Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. All right, sir, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Three, two, one, let's jam. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein, and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. In this episode, I speak with Nick Baltus, Managing Director at Goldman Sachs and Head of Cross-Asset Delta One Commodity and Stock Strategies R&D and Structuring. There are three major discussion points in this episode. First, we discuss how Nick thinks about using the broad palette of systematic strategies he has at his disposal to solve the problems of asset owners. Second, we discuss Nick's research on cross-asset skewness. Less commonly discussed among multi-asset strategies, Nick wrote one of the preeminent papers on the topic and provides considerable insight into the nuance of implementing a skewness strategy. Finally, Nick shares his thoughts on building multi-strategy portfolios, both in theory as well as with respect to meeting client needs. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nick Baltus. Nick, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. This episode's been a long time coming. I probably should have had you on seasons ago, so my apologies for taking so long, but excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. It's so kind of you. Nice to be with you, Corey. I'm looking forward to it. So Nick, let's start at the beginning, I guess we could say. Let's start with your background. Catch me up from your university days, how you got started in this industry, what got you hooked, and take me forward to where you are today. I think it was like a combination of luck and some sort of determination. I think you need both. So I started as an engineer. I did electronic computer engineering in Greece. So I'm Greek. I spent a few years of my life, actually more than half of my life for now in Greece. And then I moved to London about 20 years ago. That was the master's days. And I wanted to do a bit more signal processing and communications. So I did that at college. Went back for a short period of time. I had to do the military service. And here I was a few years later doing a PhD. And that was the first part that I kind of moved from engineering to finance. So I started doing this PhD in the Business School of Imperial College. Focus was initially to apply some signal processing techniques into finance, but soon after that moved into more like financial economics. Momentum in single stocks kicked in. Correlation risk and dependence of equity risk premia on correlation risk was the second topic. And then trend following became a thing after 2009, halfway through my PhD with some sort of capacity constraints and whether trend following has stopped working for this particular reason. I spent a couple of years after 2011 lecturing at Imperial and following some sort of academic path and research. And around 2013, after a short period in a hedge fund, doing a bit more risk management for them, moved to 
investment banking, moved to UBS, spent five years doing quantitative research, as in sitting within research department, quant equity, quant multi-asset portfolio construction. That naturally gave rise to some interest in how we built systematic strategies. And it's been now six, six and a half years I've been at Goldman Sachs. I'm sitting on the market side within structuring. My role as it evolved over the years has had a research angle and how we can bring academic thought and sophistication in the way that we think about not just strategy design, but also portfolio construction at the top level. So designing multi-strategy portfolios for specific objectives. And more recently, spending some time on the product side, looking into cross-asset portfolios, cross-asset strategies, commodity strategies, some single stocks, and so on and so forth. So a lot of client-facing as well in this capacity and trying to make the case for our clients. So that's the path. I want to start in a little bit less of a conventional spot than I usually do, which is the client side of the business. So in other podcasts, I've heard you talk about strategy selection and portfolio construction through the lens of understanding a client's utility function. And you use that phrase a lot. You use the phrase utility function a lot. So to lead off our conversation, can you talk a little bit about who the major client types are that you work with and maybe the significant principal components of their utility functions? Yes. So the clients that we interact with vary quite substantially in the wider spectrum of, let's call it family offices, which is the closest to, let's say, an individual up to the large asset owners and asset allocators. So we have all the large sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, public or private, asset managers, insurance firms, and all of them come to us with a range of problems to solve in a good way, investment problems to think about and structure a solution. And I guess in the early days of the systematic investing hype over the last 10, 15 years, it was more about a holy grail. So the utility function, what we try to solve for is this not necessarily mythical creature, but close to being mythical, uncorrelated, diversified alpha performs irrespective of what the market does. However, I'm going to add it to my asset allocation portfolio is going to add value. It's going to hedge all the downside. It's going to produce yield on the upside and so on and so forth. That moved over the years and obviously with more thought and sophistication put into it, as well as new systematic strategies being developed but also some real-life experiences. I think Volmageddon in 2018 was a good lesson. The spot down Voldan in Q4 2018 was another lesson. I think COVID was even more kind of adding to this experience, whereby we have seen those clients not necessarily challenging the premise of systematic investing, but rather appreciating the fact that sometimes I would want to solve for something that is more defensive. And I have to acknowledge the fact that it's costly. So that's now the first spin of that utility function away from the kind of holy grail. And I think the acknowledgement of that requirement to be defensive while having to pay for it, I think it really came from the fact that this uncorrelated diversified alpha in statistical terms should sometimes do well, sometimes do badly when the market is doing badly. It's a 50-50 chance. There's no information from one to the other. But all of us, I guess, investment professionals, when the downside comes, something uncorrelated, I think mentally you'd want it to perform. And if it doesn't, you record that as a positive correlation. And then you kind of question it. Why is it not helping me? Well, sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. It's uncorrelated. If you really want it to defend you, you need something defensive. And that's a negative correlation story. That's a different utility function. That's where the term comes from. And I kind of keep on using it because that's what we want to solve for. So to list a few of those utility functions that we typically have to address. Some are very generic in the sense that 
I want to be defensive now and I'm happy to pay some costs to it, but I will want to be protected against some downside market regimes or I want to enhance my yield. And back in the days with rates being very low, I wanted to make sure that I deliver some yield, even though now I have to appreciate some downside risk and contagion effect. Or I want to hedge against inflation and and 60-40 portfolio suffering and equity one correlation spiking. But, you know, over the years and as those kind of higher level utility functions were much more well understood and we have had a plan as to how we can solve for them, we have now had some more, I guess, idiosyncratic objectives. I'll give you a few examples. I'm kind of thinking through exactly what I should mention, but we've had a couple of examples whereby the client wanted to hedge private equity exposure. It's like, hey, I have this private equity exposure on my side. They performed very well. That's like a year or two ago. I don't want to drop those positions, but I'm starting to become a bit more concerned. There's no put option on the private equity. So can we design with more liquid instruments an appropriate hedge? Or I'm holding a portfolio of hedge funds and I would want to add to it either a more defensive to the hedge fund profile portfolio or some diversifying source to it. So I guess to summarize, the whole business and the whole systematic investing, at least on our side, I guess Saga, really started from the holy grail up until we took the building blocks, we associated them with specific economic outcomes, and then we started rebuilding them for specific objectives. And that's how the utility function becomes now one of the more common terms we use in our day-to-day. Well, that leads me nicely into my next question, because one of the big differences I find when I talk to someone on the sell side versus the buy side is sell side QIS desks typically have a large palette of strategies which with they can paint a client's solution. And so it's much more important, in my opinion, to get an understanding of the categorization of how you think about those strategies. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about specifically that categorization of the world of the systematic strategies you have at your fingertips, particularly with respect to how they fit the principal components of the utility functions that you just described. Yes. So the categorization kind of goes hand in hand in a way with what we try to solve for, but there is a bit more scrutiny in the way that we are trying to categorize strategies in the following sense. For example, being defensive in itself is an objective, but it doesn't give you the recipe. And I think we've had that discussion with investors for the last five, six years. I mentioned Volmageddon. That was the first time that we had some, I would say, more coordinated questions along the lines of, why isn't trend following helping me in the Volmageddon? Well, guess what? Because you've been reaching Volmageddon following a significant uprise in equity prices, you've been long equity markets, or even if you did not want to be long, you're definitely not short. So clearly there's something here that is happening which is much more short-lived, unexpected, purely event-driven, not structural, not business cycle-oriented. So then the whole process of designing hedges for flash corrections became a category in itself whereby we look into more contractual hedges, which, by the way, are not risk premium. These are purely systematizing the process of, for example, buying a put option and delta hedging it or creating a collar structure. So this is one category in its own, like more contractual hedges. Then we move into more territory that is closer to rewarded patterns and we go into more statistical hedges. And that's more like what happens when the market doesn't necessarily tank but drops over a prolonged period of time. And that's more macro-driven. I think 2008 was this way. 2002, the dot-com was a similar dynamic and possibly last year, right, 2022. 
In those environments, we need more price-based patterns, for example, trend following or something that is capturing some structural imbalance. I think dispersion is another theme, effectively playing the RV between single stock vol and index vol. These are more statistical hedges. So that's category number two. And then we move even closer to what we know in the systematic space as rewarded premia, which are either diversifying strategies that don't necessarily add downside risk, statistically speaking, or are much more explicitly deploying exposures with downside risk, like selling volatility, which, however, are much more yield enhancing, right? And somehow in this categorization, we now span the universe across contractual hedges, statistical hedges, diversifying premia, and carry-oriented premia. Now, of course, there has to be some quantitative analysis for us to associate those categories to the strategies. It's not, by the way, clear-cut. Something that can be diversifying can equally be a hedge, but the statistical nature of the hedge also depends on what you're trying to hedge. If you really want to hedge an oil shock, you can possibly do it with an S&P put, but that introduces basis. So the question is what we're trying to hedge and how we recategorize strategies as we look at them from the lens of the client objective. So given that most asset owners will likely approach you with a benchmark comprised of primarily stock and bond beta, and my guess is most of the variance of that portfolio is being driven by stock beta. I'm curious how you think about the introduction of quant equity solutions versus the introduction of multi-asset strategies. So you're right. I mean, policy portfolios follow this kind of 60-40, I guess, golden rule. I'm not sure exactly where the golden part is in that rule, but certainly a convention. It's a 60-40 or 46, like you know, 80-20 and so on and so forth. I mean, in a risk parity sense, it's more like you no know, 20-80. But certainly this combo of equities and bonds, I think historically, the fact that you're rewarded by either being exposed to growth risk or storing your money for like the longer term, that's a term premium. So those two components have made the 60-40 the core asset allocation portfolio. So how do we then think to your question about quant equity? Well, the first thing we can do in a 60-40 portfolio is to think about a better and more thoughtful allocation on the equity side and possibly on the bond side. But because it's more equity heavy, to your point, there's much more equity risk in a 60-40, more like 90% of your risk is equities. Being more thoughtful on stock selection and tilting the allocation away from just benchmark indices has been one place that I believe quant equity over the years has tried to bring value. And obviously the factor space has been the one that has been dominating in a large way, at least on the more systematic side, right? How we think about equity allocation. So it's more like a long only integration of quant equity into the 60-40 core portfolios. And as we move away from the 60-40, that's where multi-asset allocations can come through. I think there is certainly a long only kind of first step away from 64, and that's about, for example, adding commodities. We've seen that happening even more explicitly so in the last two, three years. That's a combination of inflation dynamics, a reduced diversification between equities and bonds, you know, the correlation spikes, but also this whole pivot in favor of this green transition and how some commodities will become much more important, you know, as long as we see this transition towards more greener economies and so on and so forth. So that's stepping out of the 60-40, still remaining in kind of a long-only mindset. And then obviously we go into the alpha space. I guess the complement or the portfolio to sit on top of 60-40 allocation, that's where multi-asset comes in. Certainly multi-asset trend is the one that I believe most investors have thought about adding or have already added at the end of the day. It's a simple premium to understand, certainly with a lot of complexities, 
But that's the space that I see more multi-asset allocations being put in place, which, by the way, also can encompass quant equity in its long short format, right? So quant equity post-2008 became an increasingly popular solution, arguably an increasingly crowded space. I'm not sure whether the crowding necessarily eroded the premiums. Feel free to comment on that if you want. But certainly, the number of solutions providers grew dramatically, and arguably, it became somewhat commoditized. How are you thinking about the future of quant equity? And what structural advantages or disadvantages do you think you have operating within a bank? You are right. I think the quant equity has been heavily commoditized. Whether we call that crowding or not, that's a thing in itself, you know, a question worth digging. At the same time, I think quant equity allowed the democratization of systematic investing. I think the value and momentum and quality of those academic papers back in the 90s suddenly became vehicles for asset owners and asset allocators. But it's clear that performance has not delivered what historically has been the case. And we can point our fingers in many things. And we can even point our fingers into an evolving economy with intangibles and non-profitable tech rallies and so on and so forth, whereby factors in the very medium to short term are not rewarded. And certainly, when we do academic studies, we're talking about equilibrium and long-term rewarded exposures. But the reality is that when we obviously manage money on behalf of policyholders, we don't have infinite horizons. So the objective function, or again, the utility function that we operate under is slightly different than long-term infinite horizon, which, by the way, is one of the key assumptions in academic studies, this infinite horizon, investment horizon. So when we look into the quant equity space from the lens of an investment bank, from the lens of a systematic investing business, a bank, in my mind, can offer two main parts. And that's above and beyond the IP, which is a thing in itself. It's not necessarily different between an asset manager or a bank or an institution. This is something that we can develop, right? I think a bank has very strong platform capabilities with regards to technology and execution. So when I think about technology, we're spending a great amount of time and resources in terms of developing systems to access markets, source liquidity in a variety of venues, intradaily, and that effectively allows us, when we come to the execution front, to utilize algos, execute passively, making sure that we net the exposures as much as possible to even reduce whatever participation we have in the markets. And that's, I think, one key pillar when it comes to banks, technology and execution capabilities. The other one I would add, it's more like a derivative of that to the extent we have the capacity to systematize investment themes, not necessarily rewarded themes. One of the topics that we're spending some time and we see client interest is the following. Factors once upon a time were the alpha. Today, we can debate if they're just the alpha or possibly the unwanted and we can also debate if it's also unrewarded exposure. So there's a variety of clients which are not necessarily systematic in nature with significant equity allocations. Some are discretionary, some might come by managers. But at the end of the day, they have some exposures into some factors that might come unintentionally. So here's now the point, you know, I'm running my risk models. I have those exposures. I would love to be able to hedge them out. So hedging that out in a systematic fashion can actually happen using a toolkit that comes from a bank, right? So that's more about providing efficient hedges, if that makes sense, right? So factors now become vehicles of better portfolio risk management. 
And I think that's where a bank can still bring value. In our pre-call, you mentioned that equity factor momentum was a theme that was capturing your interest today. And you said to me that, quote, serial correlation is not just about factors, it's thematic. What did you mean by that? So, I mean, momentum, we know it pretty well, all of us. Momentum is about serial correlation of a pattern. Momentum has been a theme in systematic investing in single stocks, but also across the classes. A variety of reasons why it exists. I think one of the reasons we all, I think, accept is this flow of information that comes gradually. And as we digest this information, we deploy positions which should have been deployed instantaneously, but the fact that they're not creates a pattern that once we look into the data, looks like a momentum, like a trend. So if information is incorporated with a lag, there is no reason why it should only exist in single instruments and not in collections of assets. To the extent we take a universe with high level of dimensionality and we bring it down to clusters of information, we can call a sector as one dimensionality reduction, or we can call value or growth or high tech or all sorts of thematics and factor exposures we observe. In a way, it's our ability to digest information in a much more condensed manner. Now, taking that as a given, we do see, and that's also empirically documented, that factors that perform well over a course of a month or two tend to also continue performing. And there's this kind of slow-moving capital that can create those serial correlation patterns. And that's above and beyond, for example, some of the institutional incentives in place. If I'm a momentum manager and I perform, I'm just going to keep on buying whatever I'm buying. So I'm inflicting some serial correlation in the way I perform purely on the basis of how I receive money and how I deploy that money, right? So in this regard, and there has been a good amount of research in academia in the last three, four years, there is documentation of serial correlation patterns in the factor space. And I wouldn't be surprised if that also exists in themes. Now, a theme is not necessarily a rewarded exposure, but it's certainly an opportunity for short-term gains. So what I meant by the discussion we had is that we can start thinking about trend in a smaller dimension of the broader dimensionality in the equity world and create subgroupings that benefit from slow-moving capital And that was part of my point, right? You know, we can systematize in a trend-following format how factors perform or how themes perform. Moving to the multi-asset space, you've written about cross-asset trend, which I suspect most of my listeners are very familiar with, but also seasonality, carry, and skewness, which I think listeners may be less intimately familiar with. Curious how you see each of these different strategies satisfying different client utility functions? So the answer here is kind of more, it depends on the implementation, if you like. And to explain myself, I'll start from the thing that most people would know, right? As you said yourself, trend following, well recognized to have a defensive flavor, downside convexity, deploying exposures opportunistically respective of the direction, and so on and so forth. So it actually meets an objective with regards to being defensive, And the implementation of trend can make it more defensive or less defensive, but it still sits within the camp of being defensive. Now, if we think about carry, carry really depends as to how we implement it. If it's a, as we call it, a time series implementation, if I buy positively carry assets, it is more likely I'm going to create a risk on dynamic here, right? Because I'll be much more exposed to emerging market currencies or bonds, 
And therefore, in a market downturn, specifically, as we saw last year with an equity bond correlation shock, I am more likely to underperform or at least be exposed to those spot shock scenarios. And to me, Kira is more about nothing moves. You accrue, if you like, the yield, if it's positive or you short the asset that has negative yield, right? So in this regard, I prefer more cross-sectional implementations, you know, try the best we can to avoid having spot shocks impacting the portfolio. If anything, they should average out. So in this regard, I think of Kiri more as a diversifying source. I wouldn't call it defensive by no means, but I'm not necessarily thinking of it as a risk on trade. Then we're going into skewness, and skewness is more about a reversion. And I guess for the listeners that are not well-versed on skewness, I'm sure we're going to touch upon later, but it's more about looking for markets that have tanked quite excessively in the recent period and were betting on the recovery. So I'm looking at it more as a reversion signal. Now, the problem is that it looks like the mirroring of trend following, but then you cannot just go anti-trend to hedge trend because then you give a flat line. So here the implementation matters. And I also believe more in a cross-sectional definition of skewness. So I look at it more as a complement to trend. We can call it as adding a bit of positive carry in a trend portfolio, but I wouldn't call it a carry engine in itself. And seasonality is like a different piece, right? Because seasonality, first of all, doesn't exist in all markets. I think commodities are the, the primary source of seasonality patterns in the multi-asset space. We can talk about equities purely because we have like the tax and the dividend cycles and so on and the earning cycles. The research that's like six, seven, eight years back that I had done suggests that seasonality in itself, it's quite costly to benefit from because effectively every month or every seasonal period that comes along, you need to sell whatever you're holding and buy whatever is supposed to get into its own season and then constantly selling and buying like a turnover, like a hundred to hundred percent depends how you find it. But I see value in it more as a negation signal. Hey, I want to buy this asset because it's trending upwards, but I'm entering into a period that is more likely to underperform. You know, it's, I don't know, like a harvesting period in some commodity acts. So I would want to moderate my trend exposure purely to account for the seasonality possibility of, of showing off. So that's how I'm thinking about it. Trend more defensive, carry, if done in a cross-sectional manner, more as a diversifying component, but not just risk on. Skewness as a complement to trend and seasonality, more as a negation signal to go alongside the rest rather than trade in isolation. So I want to spend some time on cross-asset skew specifically because it is a topic that doesn't get nearly as much love as the other factors. And you wrote one of the most preeminent papers on the topic, so no one better to ask. So maybe we can start with first, what is skewness? Like how do you measure it either from a time series or cross-sectional perspective? And then I'd love to know how did the idea of using skewness as a cross-asset signal originate for you? Yes. I mean, let's give it some love then. <laughs> I'm happy to give it some love. Let's start from how the idea came through. As you said, this is an academic paper. It's in the public domain. So I can say the whole story. There was a time that we were working, kind of brainstorming on a few topics with Texas teachers, the public pension in the US. And the topic of skewness came up because we're having a discussion on commodities. There's an academic paper predating our work on this one, suggesting that commodities that sell off the most in the recent period, let's call it one year, are more likely to outperform those commodities that sell off the least or possibly spike up. Okay, so it's a cross-sectional 
relative value strategy premium. And then obviously we started thinking about, okay, fine. If that is the case, then why to start off? But then if it exists in commodities, is there any particular reason why it shouldn't exist in the other markets? At the time, there was also some research tangential to skewness. It was more about equity downside risk to explain FX carry and how some of the higher yielding currencies have downside co-skewness or co-movement with the equity market, potentially suggesting that this growth risk is part of the reward of deploying an FX carry position. So what we basically did was hypothesize, does it exist in other asset classes? And one way of thinking about skewness or how we think about statistically speaking, skewness is a statistical measure of a return distribution asymmetry. So I have my distribution. We did in grad school, the classic Gaussian distributions, symmetrical on the right side, on the left side, well-behaved tails, neither fat nor thin. But skewness was a way for us to measure if that right tail or the left tail, if they're not equal. So skewness for a symmetrical distribution is zero. If it's a negative number, it means that more frequently you end up having negative shocks. If it's more positive, it means that more likely you have positive shocks. For example, a lottery ticket is a positively skewed strategy because very occasionally, but rarely at the same time, it has this massive spike. A hedging strategy is equally the same. It doesn't do much until it does. So that's how we measure skewness. And the whole, if you like, research idea was to take equities, equity indices, currencies, interest rates, and obviously commodities to prove the point. And on a regular basis, let's call it monthly for academic purposes, we estimate for every market, futures and forwards, the historical skewness of daily returns over the last one year. So we have 252 data points. We estimate skewness per market. We rank them. We go long, the top half. In other words, those that have the most negative skew in the cross-section, and we go short the other half, and then we document the patterns. And lo and behold, you end up finding that the pattern exists across all asset classes. And not only that, the correlation among the asset class relative value portfolios is relatively low. So then you start having the classic cross-asset, multi-asset research agenda of showcasing the complementarity, doing a portfolio that does skewness across all asset classes, and there you are. So that's the story of the paper. So now that the paper's been out there for a while and you've had some time to digest it, curious, why do you think skewness works? Is this ultimately a risk factor that's being rewarded? Is this a behavioral anomaly that's being exploited? Does it differ per asset class or is there sort of a unifying theory to it? So in the literature, there are like three reasons why skewness should be rewarded. The first one doesn't really apply to futures and forwards because in itself, short selling is enough to arbitrage it away. And that's the classic demand for lottery-like tickets. It's primarily documented in, in single stocks. So single stocks that spike up more likely than not, they tend to experience excess demand. The price goes up in equilibrium. So the expected return drops. Literature suggests that retail investors are the primary users, or if you like, consumers of those stocks, effectively overbidding the stocks that are more likely to spike up and therefore exposed suffering a relatively negative return. But had you had short selling, you would be able to arbitrage this thing away. And it only kind of exists because short selling restrictions exist in some parts of the market, right? In the equity world. 
Now, if you lift that restriction, and obviously when we talk about futures in commodities and interest rates and so on and so forth, you can short as much as you can go long. It's effectively symmetrical. So in that case, one idea as to why a reward for holding skewness risk exists is purely related to the so-called cumulative prospect theory. That's the Kahneman and Tversky back in the 70s Nobel Prize winning theory that basically suggests that as long as investors do not follow the classic mean variance principles and utility function, again, I'm going to use the same term as we started from, but they have a so-called cumulative prospect theory, there is rational excess demand for positively skewed assets. So what is this theory talking about? This theory basically says that when we observe low probability outcomes, so let's go back to skewness, very large spikes on the upside or large spikes on the downside, somehow we perceive the likelihood more often than what it actually is. So let's put some numbers. Let's say something is tanking 1% of the time. We think it's tanking 5% of the time, right? So we suddenly become much more worried about an extreme downside or we become much more excited about an upside. Oh, this thing is kind of spiking up. Yeah, but it's like 1%. No, 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 it's like more frequent. So this perception, and that's again, a behavioral dynamic, which however, gives rise to rational demand. That's my point, right? So the fact that the behavior itself can be explaining, can explain a premium doesn't necessarily make it irrational, right? So this demand for positively skewed assets, of course, it's beating them up. And then we go into the same kind of story explaining the dynamic. The third reason, and that has been quite well documented in specifically in commodities, it's a pattern called selective hedging. If you're a risk manager, what's the prime thing you do? Grad school, reduce your overall risk. So you have something that you want to hedge against it. You add something to it by some hedge ratio that makes the overall portfolio exhibit lower amount of volatility. So here's the story now. To the extent that we care more about higher moments above and beyond volatility, we would want to minimize volatility while maximizing skewness. So let's give an example. I'm a producer of a commodity, I don't know, rice, for the sake of argument. My main worry is that the price is going to drop. So what am I going to do? I'm going to short the futures. But if that asset, namely rice, is more likely to exhibit spikes upwards, I would want to moderate the amount of shorting I'm going to do. And conversely, I don't know if I'm an airline and I'm buying, I don't know, I'm buying fuel. How do I hedge? I need to buy the futures. But if that price tends to tank more often than not, I would want to moderate the amount of, I guess, positive hedge ratio. And that on either side, symmetrically creates this excess demand for positive skewed assets and so on and so forth. So these are the two primary reasons, the cumulative prospect theory and selective hedging that at least in my view can justify rationally the premium itself. If you are designing a skewness strategy, what are the major levers that you can pull on in that design that will ultimately influence the return profile of the strategy? Measuring skewness is important. And the problem with measuring skewness, and I guess you have like econometricians or statisticians in the show, they can attest to the fact that skewness is not the easiest statistical measure to estimate, primarily determined by like one or two outliers. So if anything, the measurement itself, and there are various ways of measuring skewness, but in itself, that measure wants a bad or a good return, excess return, an outlier return, drops out of the rolling window of estimation you have a significant level shift. So the first thing that we have to consider is 
Number one, the stability of our signal. Specifically, when we talk about ranking markets using skewness, clearly things that move a lot in terms of their estimation would reshuffle the overall portfolio quite abruptly when those events do happen. So there is a turnover consideration here, which comes from the stability of the signal. Now, alongside that, and I think very much related to it, is the alpha decay. So I observe today a crash. Do I genuinely have to get in tomorrow? Is that outlier that is causing negative skewness a signal for me to enter today and get out in a week? Or there is some time beyond which I can just moderate my entry into it. And I think contrary to trend following, for example, that I think we should follow the signal as closely as we can. In that case, at least empirical data suggests that there is some time beyond which the decay becomes substantial, which I think helps in terms of moderating turnover. So this is one important consideration, how the metric itself is measured, the jumpiness in its rolling estimation and how that is impacting turnover as well as alpha decay. I think other points which are quite important is how we eventually end up putting the portfolio together and how we allocate between markets. Do we allocate on a dollar neutral base, on a risk neutral basis, and how the overall risk management is put in place. There are some important dynamics when it comes to scaling the exposures. But again, to go back to your initial question, what are the major design components here? It's the measurement, it's the alpha decay, it's a turnover consideration, and ultimately it's how we put the portfolio together. These are the key components in my mind. When you talk about putting the portfolio together, sort of the naive base implementation for many multi-asset strategies, particularly in the future space, is you scale all the markets to constant vol. Or equivalently, you weight all the markets in proportion to their volatility, which are effectively the same. But with skewness, this can lead, if you're trying to buy the markets that have sold off dramatically, right, have had big crashes, this would lead to actually cutting position size precisely when the signal is turning the most positive. Explain this phenomenon and maybe how inverse vol weighting is or is not appropriate as a portfolio construction. And if it's not appropriate, what is a more appropriate portfolio construction to think through? Yes, yes. We might get a bit technical, but I hope this is fine. So why do we vol scale in the first place? Why do we adjust our exposure as a function of vol? The primary reason is to have the assets between effects and rates that might have a realized volatility of 2 or 3 or 4% move similarly, and I know that I'm using terms in a very vague sense, like for example, commodities that have like 30 or 40 or 50% volatility. In the absence of this vol scaling, the overall portfolio risk would be dominated by the high volatility markets. And specifically in a multi-asset portfolio, I would be losing participation from the lower volatility assets. So then the portfolio is just biased and concentrated by the definition. And I think the reason why risk parity portfolios, even in the equity bond world, have become more popular is because we're just equating the risk. That's data point number one. Now, there is no reason why an asset performs better or worse if we scale our exposure inversely to its own vol. Statistically, we're just making it behave more normally distributed in a way. That's all we do. And then obviously we can ask ourselves why, for example, vol scaling S&P works. Well, it only works because in addition to moderating the vol, you're reducing the exposure specifically when the vol is spiking, which is then followed by negative returns. So reducing the participation 
in the downside is helping in the longer term improve the Sharpe ratio. In other words, there is dependence between the vol of the asset and the subsequent return, which, by the way, might not or might have some implication when we build portfolios. So let's go back now to your initial point, right? We vol scale because we want things to be put together on equal footing in a portfolio. The problem here, specifically for skewness, is that we have to be very considerate of the act of vol scaling not going against the signal, right? So having a signal predicting return is one thing. Deciding upon sizing those portfolios on the base of volatility is another thing. And the interaction of those two is key and they should not clash because if they do clash, to your point, we have a bet, but then we don't want to allocate too much to it. So then what's the point of doing it? So to really now answer your question, skewness in itself, statistically speaking, is volatility scaled. Technically, how this is done, we're looking into the deviations from the historical mean. We take the third power, so it becomes much more positive and if an outlier arises on the positive side, much more negative on the negative side. But then we scale by the third power of the volatility. So it's in volatility adjusted terms, how far away from the mean was the realization. That's basically the story, right? So in a way, vol is embedded in the estimation of skewness. But then when you end up allocating to it, if you really want to vol scale the asset, it has most likely recorded a vol spike while it created an opportunity for you. So then vol scaling that asset, yeah, of course, you're going to make everything on equal footing and the portfolio is going to behave in terms of risk allocation. But your bet is now the one that is underweighted in the cross-section. So you now go completely against your bet, right? And I think it's extremely important to recognize that while building a portfolio and looking into those interdependencies between decisions that are seemingly unrelated, but they're actually very related. The signal and the portfolio construction are not two worlds apart. So how we wanted to address the problem? Well, then you cannot just say, I'm not going to use vol scaling. Because you go back to the first problem, right? You know, how am I going to put a, a bond portfolio together with like commodities, right? So the, the problem is still there. So we have to find ways to volatility scale our positions, but try to be less exposed to the shock that became the trading opportunity in the first place. The shock that made the asset an opportunity in the cross-section. The shock that created the skewness in the first place. And I think that's where part of our research and our thought process has focused on. There's all sorts of ways we can think about how we can windsorize, for example, the return distribution or how we can look into other volatility measures that are less prone to extremes, but there is value in looking into it. And it's not just blindly doing full scaling would do the job. It won't do the job. When it comes to the signal itself, in the original paper, you looked at that rolling one-year period historical look back on the data. But there's another potentially obvious source of signal, which would for those markets that have deep and liquid options trading, you could actually do a forward-looking implied skew. When you look at sort of historical realized skew versus forward-looking implied skew, do you find any difference in the effectiveness of the signal? Or would you expect any difference in the source of investor behavior as to why the signal may or may not work? So frankly, it's something we haven't yet looked at. It is something that we would want to spend some time on. And I'm looking into the forward-looking distribution of returns more as a market consensus or like a sentiment rather than a response to a historical movement. I think the parallel I can have to your question is how we think about 
value and carry. And because value is a cheap opportunity today in realization, quote unquote, terms, whereas carry is the cheapness in an asset in anticipation of the future as it is informed by the futures curve. So no focus yet on how realized skewness relates with forward-looking skewness. And I think looking into forward-looking skewness, first of all, requires a smaller set of assets precisely because we need the breadth across strikes and tenors to be able to pull it out, which in itself requires a good amount of work. But I think of that dynamic more as a sentiment dynamic and how sentiment makes the volatility surface move in one or the other direction to inform our beta allocations. For example, somebody can look, let's say, into the shape of the volatility curve and depending on the flatness of it, go in or out of the asset. But no specific connection for now between realized skewness and forward-looking skewness, not at least in that context. I want to take a step back more broadly on cross-asset strategies. When we talk about combining different signals, we can run into this units problem. For example, the units of carry may not align with the units of skew. How do you think about dealing with this issue? That's my view, right? And it doesn't have to be the universal truth. But when I tend to think about multi-asset portfolios, I prefer to think about risk budgeting as a concept. So I have some conviction. That conviction determines the direction. If it's trend following, direction is pretty determined by the positive or negative price trend. If it's carry or skewness, the direction is also determined by some cross-sectional ranking. But then the magnitude that comes with the signal, whether that is my trend signal or my carry signal after ranked or my skewness signal, this is ultimately my conviction upon that asset. And I'm in favor of risk budgeting as the risk depends how we do the risk budgeting with all the volatility dynamics that we discussed. But this risk budgeting in itself is unitless, right? So one of the efforts that we try to do is to express any signal or any cross-sectional normalization in a way that makes numbers comparable. Whether that is a trend-following signal that is vol-scaled and now that looks more like a sharp ratio, it now becomes unitless in a way. Or if it's a rank, that in itself is unitless as long as it's properly normalized. So it's an incredibly important point, the one you're making in terms of getting the numbers, getting the signals in the same units in a way. Otherwise, you have explicit biases in the portfolio optimization, which might not be necessarily obvious purely by looking at the signal itself. So again, my principle, risk budgeting, budgeting itself suggests that we have to have units that are additive, if anything. And therefore, there has to be some pre-work done at the signal level to make it comparable in the cross-section. Not only within the same asset class, right, but also across asset classes. If you stay in the same asset class, volatilities might be similar, right? And therefore, you might say, well, you know what? I'm just not going to bother with vol scaling. I'm just going to let the portfolio construction deal with it. I think the problem becomes multidimensional when we go multi-asset. In our pre-call, you said that, quote, the way to think about portfolio construction needs to reflect the basis of risk in the signal itself. Can you expand on what you meant by that? This is related to the point we discussed five minutes ago. It's more about the principle being... I want to allocate more to the markets that exhibit stronger signal, whether in time series on the retrosection. Again, it depends on the design. But then the fact that the signal is predicting return, so we want to buy whatever goes up or we want to buy whatever has more carry 
or we want to buy whatever has realized more negative skewness. That in itself is one thing, and it has nothing to do with sizing. So if I suggest that my trend following optimization is the one I should also use for carry or skewness, I'm now making a mental jump, which suggests that vol scaling or correlation penalization is exactly what I need for my skewness portfolio. But there's so many little details that actually matter a lot. Like trend following, just to have the counter argument to the one we made for skewness, not only does it like the vol scaling, but it actually benefits from it. Right? Because specifically for markets that exhibit serial correlation between the vol spike and the subsequent return, not only can you benefit from following their trends, but also dynamically scaling your exposure as it predicts future returns, you're actually double performing, right? If something is going to underperform because it continues its own underperformance or because its own volatility spiked, then you have two dimensions on which you can deploy risk, right? And this is completely different to say, hey, this market tanked, negative skewness, I'm going to buy, but I'm going to vol scale. Because now one goes against the other. So almost like they cancel each other as opposed to reinforcing each other. So why did I make this point is because we cannot just take one optimization, one allocation engine, and just deploy it in a signal, whatever the signal is. And I think making this connection and avoiding clashes, which are most likely unintended, I would believe so, is key. So no size fits all. On the topic of building multi-asset strategies, you also said, quote, I like features that bring something to the portfolio design that don't have an impact on the backtest. Don't have an impact on the backtest. What did you mean by that? <laughs> so one of the sins of designing systematic strategy is data mining. And that's one of the largest, well-recognized, well-understood, we call it out, behavioral biases we all have. Selection bias when it comes to a backtest or a design or to a parameter is something we should be all aware of. And at the same time, we should do the best we can to, I guess, to control for. By all means, it will never go away, right? Because it's just part of our human nature, right? You, know, you run a backtest with a negative sharp, you're almost kind of discarded automatically, right? Even before you process it. So when we design portfolios, one of the things I'm very fond of and I'm discussing with the team and we keep on brainstorming is that what makes sense from a philosophical standpoint. So I made, for example, earlier the point that I like risk budgeting and prudent risk management. That's a philosophy, right? We can debate whether it's good or bad, whether it adds value, detracts value. But as a principle, this is how we would want, I would want to build portfolios for our clients. So in this regard, there are some design features, and I'm going to give a few examples, that once you deploy them, the backtests would look the same. But somehow, instead of negating their impact, we should embrace them. And I think we should embrace them because if there's a fundamental philosophy underneath, then we would hope that we're protecting the portfolio from the unseen. So I'll give one example. And one example here is, for example, concentration risk. So let's say we build a portfolio, have a backtest of Sharp of whatever, and then we deploy some concentration risk limits. So you know what? Per market, I'm not going to allow more than X. You run your backtest, no impact. Now, is that a good thing to have or not? Well, it's certainly the last line of defense. The last thing you would want is to deploy significant exposure 
to the extent you're deploying exposure as a function of the signal strength, then therefore you will be having a lot of exposure in this market. So if we were to deliver something that at some point in time, everything else is not performing, this one is actually having strong performance, we deploy a lot of risk to it, and it turns south, then we are liable to our investors to explain why this is the case. And I'd rather have a prudent risk management system in place, even if the backtest does not seem to benefit from it. Or another one right now, asynchronicity, okay? Some markets trade in Asian hours, some markets trade in US hours, but then we run optimizers across all markets. What we have to recognize is that news obviously flows linearly, or at least in continuous time, but there is no point in time during the day that those markets are synchronous. In other words, let's say I'm doing a trend-following portfolio. I have, let's say, long Japan exposure, some European time, US market closes negative. Those two markets are positively correlated. Let's make the assumption for the sake of argument. So now here's the optimizer wanting to go long, Japan, short, US, but then struggling because like at a 90% correlation. So what it does is that, yes, it goes short US, but then it explodes the gross exposure to meet a vol target. The day after it comes, obviously Japan picks it up. Japan goes to negative territory. The end of that day, you'd want to go short Japan. So you go short Japan, but then you start buying back a bit of the US because guess what? You know, you're shorting two markets that are highly correlated. So on a backtested basis, there are some gains here and that's more like on the cost side, but this is purely noise in my system that unless I recognize, albeit the, you know, the outcome from a backtesting perspective, this is just the prudent way of doing it, cleaning the input to the process, risk management and so on and so forth. These are important features whatever the impact in the portfolio is. So I think philosophical design choices, which are not philosophical as in they're not close to being realistic. It's more about the guidelines or the dogmas about design. I think these are important irrespective of the backtesting. But I'm not suggesting, by the way, that they would have like a huge negative impact, right? Clearly. <laughs> That's my data mining bias now again. <laughs> How do you think about combining different multi-asset strategies into a client portfolio? And here I'd love for you to comment on two points if you can. One, this idea of mixing signals versus mixing strategies, which I think can lead to very different outcomes. And then two, the impact of directional versus cross-sectional signals and the interplay there. Yes. So the first one, which is signal mixing versus strategy mixing, this is, some people call it integration versus mix. Some call it bottoms up versus top down. This is ultimately the choice that somebody can make to observe two signals, combine the signals and solve an optimization, or observe one signal, build a portfolio, observe another signal, build another portfolio, and do a basket of the two. Okay. So there's been some good amount of research in that topic, possibly five, six years ago. And there were a number of good papers written on that topic, by the way, without a particular consensus being drawn. Some were in favor of integration, some were, you know, were in favor of the mix. So the first important condition, by the way, for the mix at the signal level to operate well is that we have strategies that are either directional or cross-sectional. That kind of lends a bit from your second part of the question, what do we do with directional or cross-sectional signals? They have to be of the same nature, at least in my view. So if I have two directional signals, I don't know, a trend and a seasonality, for example, or two cross-sectional signals like you know, skew and curry, 
then I can bring them together subject to, of course, some unit compatibility. And we discussed that already. They have to come in, in similar units or some sort of Z-scoring or normalization. But also we have to be very careful about the actual correlation of the signals. If the signals are heavily positively correlated, we're basically having one signal in a way. And therefore the joint signal is possibly more informative because it's more like no denoising now. If the correlation is like 95%, if I have like earnings to price ratio and book to price ratio, guess what? I'd rather have the joint of the two because I'm kind of capturing the same unseen premium with two noisy proxies. So heavily positive correlation, I should do that. Heavily negative correlation, I should be actually very careful with what I'm doing because all I'm saying is that I have a signal that tells me to buy and another signal that tells me to sell. So if I mix them up, I'm going to have the best of both worlds, which is basically nothing. I'm going to get the average, right? Because you know, if something is good on one signal and the worst in the other one and vice versa, the combination will get me to a no portfolio. If it's somewhere in kind of reasonable bounds of correlation, that's when it becomes more interesting. Because now when we mix the signals, we try to get the best of both worlds. For example, I'm buying high quality stock that comes at a reasonable price. Or I'm sorting a loser, which is not deep value, for example. So I'm trying to make this combination like the best of both worlds. And here there are some benefits specifically when it comes to turnover. So that's the benefit of signal mixing. I can also see the value in strategy mixing as in top-down combination of strategies. And that is more about portfolio management, performance attribution, and so on. If I mix the signals, it's harder to get performance attribution. If I have like a value and momentum together, which one of the two is driving the return? Because it is more likely than not that I'm not holding the best momentum and I'm not holding the best value either. Because each of those is almost discarded because it is very likely that the other signal is very counter to it. Again, assuming no perfect negative correlation. Now, jumping to the second part of your question, directional versus cross-sectional signals. I'm much more keen on doing this combination at the top level. And I think the reason why I say so it is more related to the portfolio construction rather than the signals themselves. We go back now to some of the points we went a bit at length. If we do trend following, I like risk budgeting. If we do skewness, which is both cross-sectional but also anti-vol scaling, at least in its classical way, then even if I were to mix the signals, how do I deploy them? Like the signal itself, the signals themselves might not be compatible. One is directional and the other is cross-sectional. But neither of the two is compatible with the portfolio engine that I'm going to, at the end of the day, deploy, right? So all those conflicts are harder to manage. And at the end of the day, it's not good for our clients and, and the clients of our clients, right? So I prefer to be more like top level in this regard. There are some ways that we can use combination of signals. But if we do so, in the case of incompatibility, I prefer to have a major and a minor. For example, the minor is a negation signal. I want to buy trend, but guess what? If the market has very negative carry, I'm not going to deploy it or I'm going to halve my risk or whatever, right? That is not necessarily a combination on equal footing. It is rather I have a major and I'm going to use some sort of a negation or a penalty to it if I have some sort of disagreement. That's how I see the space of signal strategy and portfolio construction actually interacting with each other. Bring this back to sort of the conversation we were having at the beginning, right? You're painting with this palette of strategies trying to solve a client problem. And let's say as the client comes to you, just as an example, you find that 
maybe value and momentum are the strategies that make the most sense in isolation, right? They have the characteristics you're looking for. How do you develop the confidence that integrating them will necessarily provide the solution that the client is looking for when the strategy evaluation is being done in isolation? Good question. And I think I would go even one step further. And that being how we even think about putting strategies together with different statistical properties, right? So if we want to have a hedging portfolio, for example, that we buy some rolling put options and some rolling collars or whatever that might be as a very contractual expensive hedge, or I do a diversifying portfolio that brings value and momentum to quote you and you know, some commodity congestion strategy for the sake of argument. That in itself is a problem of portfolio construction, not anymore at the strategy level, but at the top level. Examples, again, kind of almost using the same principles. The hedge strategies spike up occasionally. Now, if I were to vault scale those strategies, I'm going to start penalizing the fact that they're actually hedging. So clearly I'm doing something wrong here, right? But still, if one is delivering 2% in a hedging scenario and the other one is doing 10, I think I need more of the 10 or possibly I need to balance out the 10 and the 2 so that both of them give me 5. So there's some scaling still required. So here I need to see how vault scaling acts and interacts with the strategies, which is very different to looking into value and momentum, which is now more about the correlations matter between value and momentum. And to your point, do I cannibalize one with the other if I just put them together? And if I do put them together, is their correlation important? So that in aggregate, I reduce the exposure to both when they co-move and I deploy more, let's say, to commodity congestion. And I think some of the work we're doing is not taking the building blocks as given that satisfy an objective. And then here you are, inverse vol scale everything. Inverse vol scaling is not panacea, right? <laughs> Either within a strategy or across strategies. It's about thinking how we pull this portfolio together to not cannibalize, but also be very cognizant of the distribution assumptions. Let's put trend following as a last argument. Do I use correlations between trend following and other strategy? Probably not. Because however trend following performed in the recent past does not suggest that it's going to deploy similar exposure going forward. Because guess what? If today everything flips, I'm holding the mirror portfolio of what I was holding yesterday. So my past correlation to whatever else I want to hold alongside trend is no longer informative. So these are also decisions that we have to go through. I'm not giving you a straight answer because there isn't, right? It really matters what are the building blocks, and then we go with those. Of course, there are principles, but that's how we look at it. Not cannibalizing, but being conscious of stuff. Now, really bringing it back to your first answer, you mentioned that in your PhD program, you originally looked at strategy, congestion, and crowding. And in 2019, you came back to that work and wrote about the impact of crowding and alternative risk premia. How do you think about capacity risk in these strategies, particularly as it relates to being able to deliver these mandates to clients? So capacity is possibly the number one consideration we have when we build a strategy above and beyond the design principles that we went through. Ultimately, what we want to deliver is a strategy that is not impacted by any price impact. You know, we want to be very conscious as to how we design the portfolio, but also how much liquidity we consume. How do I think about capacity? Capacity is defined in two ways in my mind, what you hold and what you transact. What you hold, of course, determines how quickly you can get out 
what you transact is how much do you consume on an ongoing basis to maintain an exposure. Both are important. Sometimes one is more binding, sometimes it's the other. Sometimes it's the open interest in the futures market, sometimes it's the volume. So we have to look into both sides of the equation. So we need to control for both. And to the extent possible, and we try our best to do so, is incorporate those market dynamics and market data by the virtue of open interest or traded volume into the design. In other words, if I have a portfolio that needs to execute some amount per market on a daily basis, I would want to make sure that I allow my optimizer to go as much as there is no market impact. So consuming a tiny fraction of the daily traded volume. So we enforce dynamic constraints in the way that we rebalance our portfolios to not have any capacity consideration. But of course, to get there, we have to obviously solve for a specific capacity beyond which we don't feel comfortable about. Now, that's how we think about capacity, how we control about capacity. The one thing I would say about crowding, not back in the days of the PhD, that was more about trend following. And I was looking more into this open interest type of a question. If we were to backtrack trend following performance over the last 30, 40 years and look into the open interest per market, how much would I have consumed had I deployed the CTA capital at the time, blah, 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 blah. Finding too little, the positive message there, I think was well received. But the work that was done kind of more later in 2019, as you mentioned, that was more of an attempt to shed light on the term of crowding, but also suggest that crowding in itself this is the absolute necessity for systematic premium to perform. Like you almost need others to go with you to deploy an exposure for prices to move in a way, right? As long as this doesn't become contagious. And if it becomes contagious, there are two things that are happening. Number one, if the premium you're trying to harvest is a self-fulfilling prophecy, the more you do, the more you want, the more you want, the more you have to do, and the more you have to do, the more you want, then it's about risk management. And when I do momentum, I'm buying the same stuff and they keep on going up and I want to buy more and then I need to deploy leverage and then I'm going to an investment bank and then I'm going to kind of start getting more leverage and more leverage. The problem there is like, when is it going to stop, right? Once it's going to stop, then I have the force unwinds. And that's a risk management story. If it's a convergence premium, that was the work that we did back then, if I'm harvesting a premium, it's more like a compensation to risk. I'm buying the cheap, you're sorting the expensive. That should go kind of hand in hand for that spread to tighten, then the more capital there is, the faster it goes away. So this is now about a disappearance of a premium rather than the excessiveness of a premium that requires more risk management. So that was part of the point that we wanted to put out there. Like, you know, crowding is not a one-way street. Again, we have to look at it in the context of the strategy. Well, Nick, we come to the end of the episode and I'm asking everyone this season the same final question. It's a simple question, but hopefully it, it highlights some of the things you're thinking about. And that question is, what is your current obsession? This could be obsession in pop culture, could be obsession in markets, it could be a book you're reading, a show you're obsessed with. What is your current obsession? Okay, Ooh, that's a good one. I have a couple of them. One of them, there's this book I've read some time now, but it has become a bit of my routine. It's called Why We Sleep. Right, this whole philosophy as to why, as a species, right, we evolved over centuries and we still have to sleep for seven, eight hours. And it's kind of mind-blowing that if Darwin was correct, of course he has been, we should have just dropped the need. We should have evolved because if sleep was just about getting some rest, 
then we would have found better ways, right? We would have been more efficient. There's other things that, you know, species historically have done to become more efficient. So like losing two thirds of the day, losing, quote unquote, that shouldn't be there. And the book goes on and on discussing how the brain goes through processes of kind of forgetting pain or documenting memories or allowing kind of a reshuffle of experiences or possibly getting some skill and, and excelling on it. They give you this very nice example whereby like a pianist is trying to play something, you know, he doesn't really manage. And then, you know, the day after actually manages that. And then this obviously span off a number of experiments. So that had an impact because it basically says, listen, there's a lot of late age health problems that are associated with lack of sleep. And one of the things you have to do is just moderate the way you sleep and try to look at it as an investment of your time rather than as a, I'm going to go late to bed and then whatever, like five hours is enough. So I'm trying to be a bit more like religious on that. Don't ask me if I have manners because I failed so far miserably. So that became a bit of an obsession with my day to day. I got to tell you, with a young baby at home, sleep has also become an obsession of mine. So maybe I'll use that book as, <laughs> as an excuse. There you, are. there you are. It's really good. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 